0: I'm Katie Rich, the Deputy Editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our Chief Critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And returned from Austin, Texas, we have our Senior Writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello, Katie. Uh, we are missing Mike Hogan today, uh, but he hasn't seen the Irishman yet, so what opinion of his do we need?
1: Anyway? We're lacking our Irishman to comment oh. on the Irishman. <laughs>
0: He's well, he. I'm sure he will have a very hot take to come when he sees the Irishman, just like uh, Joanna and I will.
3: Yeah, we we know he has Judy opinions, though. So I'm excited to hear those, too. Uh, Yeah,
0: well, uh, we're planning to talk about the Irishman and Judy and uh, a lot of other things. It's been a while since we talked about movies, we had the Emmys kind of jump in the middle, but we are so in the thick of award season now. Mm -hmm. So there's a ton to talk about. Um, But we want to start talking briefly with the weekend's big release. Um, I think we're going to talk more about Joker next week after uh, Joanna and I have had a chance to see it after it opens in theaters and kind of. Ends this many weeks of buildup that's been happening since it premiered at Venice, where uh, you reviewed it, Richard. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted to mention that uh, Joaquin Phoenix is the star of Joker. He's on our cover this week. The story went online today as we're talking. It's really fascinating. He talks a lot about River Phoenix, which I'm not sure he's talked about in a long time. And it's just kind of like reflecting, not just, you know, not like getting into the details about how his brother died really young, um, but just kind of the effect it had on his career about how he was like the sad surviving brother for such a long time. And he tells a story about how when they were kids, Rivers said something to him to the effect of like, you're going to be an actor too and people are going to know you more than I do. And at this point, that's honestly true, which is really strange to think about. Um, And Richard, you wanted to talk briefly about uh, something we've been talking about with Joker that uh, you wanted to correct the record on.
1: Yeah, someone pointed this out to me on Twitter or someone's plural, I think. Um, So I guess on a couple occasions, one or two, I don't remember on this podcast, I said, you know, the Aurora shooting in 2012 during the, the Dark Knight, uh, rises, um, that that the the shooter was dressed up like the Joker, which is, I now ha- know, having read a Denver Post article and uh, a couple others, that that has been debunked. That is not true. And I apologize for spreading that misinformation.
0: Uh, I think you're you know, far from the only one, though. That's yeah. a pretty common story that gets repeated about it.
1: Yeah. And it's just, an you know, one of those kind of sorry situations where, you know, something gets said seven years ago that it wasn't true and that people like me are still (laughs) perpetuating now because we haven't done our homework so i i apologize for that Uh, i don't think that minimizes necessarily my you know like mildish concerns about this new joker movie uh it's kind of messaging but yes i was i was wrong about about the past incident for sure
3: and what is true is that that Aurora theater has it at least moved its press screening of Joker from that theater. I don't know if it canceled all screenings there. Once again, I don't want to spread misinformation, but I know that theater specifically did like move a Joker screening out of there. So it is inextricably linked to the larger conversation we're having about Joker is these concerns. So, I, you know, I... Uh, I, I really am interested to see what happens when a wide audience sees the movie, whether or not these concerns uh, impact, dampen the opening uh, weekend. I know Warner Brothers is concerned that it will affect their bottom line, uh, these cultural concerns. And I know that they canceled uh, the red carpet aspect of their premiere. So, you know, it's it's a very fraught uh, film. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was saying before we started, which I know we've been talking about, but uh, as I was saying before we were recording, I think it's the narrative of the Joker is really going to be shaped by its wide release. This is not a like festival shaped story uh, I think, you know, some films sort of die in the festival and not that not the Joker would because it like, you know, it, it the, won the golden lion. It won the golden lion. Exactly. <laughs> it's not like it's not that. But, uh, you know, I because of the populist appeal of this film, I think it really is something that we're going to have to wait and see what the general public thinks as well.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, general public in this case includes you and me, Joanna, since we haven't yes. seen it yet. So,
1: yeah, you're uh, we the, you're will the be,
0: hoi Ploy. <laughs> <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> we'll be joining the unwashed masses seeing Joker this weekend. Um, but speaking of prestigious festivals where people get to see things early, uh, Richard, you joined uh, all of New York City film Twitter, as far as I can tell, by waking up at the crack of dawn and uh, complaining about seeing three and a half hours of The Irishman last Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite the fact that I keep hearing people say that the first 90 minutes are maybe not that great, uh, <laughs> people seem to like it anyway. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think I might actually still be in that screening I this could be a, You guys could just be part of a dream. You've um, been
0: you've been aged up actually <laughs> huh?
1: yeah. um, I Know what people mean when they say that because they're you know, it's a long movie um, And there was a lot of you know, the fact that it was early in the morning and it was the, you know The sort it was on last Friday, which was the opening day for the New York Film Festival And there was a party that night and so it was just like it felt like a big day sort of weighted with anticipation um and so then you actually have to watch the movie and sort of assess it on its own terms and try to forget, you know, everything surrounding it. Um, and, you know, for yeah, a, a bulk of it, I was like, OK, like this is, you know, a Scorsese film about gangsters. I've seen this before. I've saw Goodfellas. I saw Casino. And it struck me as well-made and and engaging, but like nothing new. But I think then the film takes a turn, and I think that's towards something a bit more thoughtful, a bit more um, considering, you know, uh, considerate of Scorsese's age and the actors he's working with, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, their age and their sort of legacy in the... Uh, you know pantheon of gangster cinema Um, and that's when the film I think to me gets really interesting so I understand why people are kind of when they tweet a reaction to it or whatever are breaking the movie up into those two kind of component parts Um, but fear not it's not as if you're gonna have to wait an hour and a half for the movie to get interesting it's interesting from frame one Um, it just becomes something more interesting uh, later on in the film
0: I've heard of comparisons to Unforgiven, you know, the way that uh, Clint Eastwood makes this late-in-life Western kind of questioning the entire notion of a Western. And it it does seem like something that Scorsese would be at a good point in his life to do, to kind of question the structure of the gangster movie entirely. Is that right to you?
1: Yeah, I actually hadn't thought about that, but that feels right to me. Um, You know, I think that, well, I'm a sort of, A naysayer on a lot of Eastwood's latter films. So, like, uh, but uh, so, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But, like, I think Scorsese is also, unlike Eastwood, doing something really interesting stylistically and art, you know, with Mm -hmm. with the Irishman, where I think Eastwood has has just gotten very straightforward with his filmmaking.
0: Well, he's got his Richard Jewell movie coming out later. So, we might be talking a lot about Clint Eastwood this year. Surprise.
1: Um, But, you know, I appreciate any filmmaker, especially one of Scorsese's renown, who can take an honest assessment of his past work, and I think in particular Goodfellas and Casino, that he made, you know, 28 years ago and 23 years ago-ish, and, you know, both appreciate them and sort of, you know, he still does the same style, he still employs two of the same actors, De Niro and Pesci, while also kind of critiquing himself, you know, And, and critiquing, I think, the mythos that those films helped enshroud organized crime in you know and I think you know something I said in my review is that those movies I think were direct you know, precursors to The Sopranos, which was basically this sort of Harold trumpet blast along with Sex and the City, kind of announcing the arrival of the new TV golden age. Uh, and, you know, so Scorsese is weirdly kind of indirectly re- responsible for that or helped that kind of happen. And now he's doing a movie with Netflix. And I think that like, in a weird way, there's a kind of contemplation about that, about just everyone getting older and the world changing and maybe some of the old models and some of the old anti-heroes uh are inadequate uh emblems for our time and i think the irishman really intriguingly kind of gets at all that
0: it just the way you're talking about that the idea of like the passing of time does it feel like a spiritual uh companion to once upon a time in hollywood
1: yeah it does it does i think absolutely i think that what the irishman has over once upon a time in hollywood in my estimation is the benefit of scorsese being you know what 20 years older than quentin tarantino is um, and and I think also Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a little bit less self-referencing. Uh, mm. I mean, I think Tarantino is referencing cinema as a sort of, you know, idea. Um, not his own career. I don't feel like it as quite as much, no, no. Yeah. Whereas The Irishman, I mean, in the last especially like 30, 40 minutes, like, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how because I don't want to spoil anything. But, like, you're like, oh, yeah, this is like... <laughs> It's about itself in a way, you know, and and, hmm. and and sometimes that can be kind of an annoying that, that sort of meta sort of self-awareness. I, I compared it to um, Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory, which is also at the New York Film Festival, which is also um, a very self-referential film, much more directly than The Irishman is. I mean, it's literally about like an aging Spanish gay filmmaker, <laughs> so <laughs> that's pretty much on the nose. But like, but both of those movies, I think very wisely for guys in their 70s, like, just sort of like, okay, like what have I made? Let me assess this. Let me think about mortality. And 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 I did not expect such gentleness from a Martin Scorsese gangster movie, but there it is.
0: Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I'm seeking out a turn for you, but I feel like the de-aging technology is the thing that, I don't know if you can even describe whether or not it works. And I feel like you have to see it for yourself, but, uh, but how does it work?
1: Um, it's not as intrusive <laughs> as you think it's going to be. Okay. Um, you notice it. I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. You do notice it. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, De Niro has a certain deadness behind his eyes when he's been aged down. They're not turning him into a twenty-two year old. They're—they're—it's pretty much he's like maybe late thirties into his into middle age. Um, I'm choosing to believe that late thirties is not middle age <laughs> for selfish reasons. <laughs> um, uh, you know, so so it's there. I think it works better with Pesci weirdly than it does De Niro. And I don't really know how much of it they do with Pacino, but like, it is not the distraction I feared it would be. Uh, so I yeah. think that's the big relief. It's like you can watch the movie and assess it without just sort of being obsessed with like, oh, look at that weird face.
0: And you wrote in your review that it matters that it's the same actors. Like it was worth yeah. doing this rather than recasting them as uh, with twenty two year olds.
1: Well, that's very much the thing with this movie being three and a half hours long. You're like, oh brother, like how can how could a movie be this long? But actually, this is the rare movie that really earns that time. It, it you know, there's really not doesn't feel like there's a scene that extraneous or whatever. And part of that experience is that you are following these characters over you know, a number of decades. And I think it really matters that you are seeing some version of the same face for that entire, you know, 209 minute duration of the film. Um, mm-hmm. If it was a younger, you know, sort of De Niro lookalike playing him for the first half of the film and then we switched to De Niro, I think some of the film's impact, especially what it has to say about aging and mortality at the end, toward the end of the film, would really be lessened because we haven't been with the same face uh, or the same Person the whole time, so I I, th- I understand in retrospect why Scorsese kind of insisted on doing this and why he asked Netflix for 160 million dollars to do it, <laughs> uh, which is insane. You know, it works; it does. I uh, though that makes me worry that lesser filmmakers will be like, "Oh, that worked for them. Like, let's do it for our thing," and it's not going to work in the same way. You know, mm,
3: like Gemini Man. Um, so. <laughs> Well, something that I'm curious about, and and I don't know if you can speak to this having seen it, like, not only in the big screen, but in this festival setting, is how much this will feel like a mini series to people who watch it on Netflix, given mm. its runtime, given that it takes 90 minutes to get going. So, like, the joke I made on Twitter was something about, like, you know, the first three episodes, mm-hmm. a little slow, but then it, like, <laughs> kicks in halfway through, like, a classic Netflix show. So, you know, like... Uh, I don't know if that's even a danger. I don't know if it even matters. But is there any danger of this playing almost like the most prestige of prestige TV shows on Netflix?
1: Um, well, I think one thing that differentiates it looks incredible. I mean, like the aesthetic of the film feels like a movie you pay fifteen dollars to see in a theater. Like so, that I think differentiates it from some of Netflix's um, you know serial content. But you know, I there were conversations I overheard right after the screening or at the party later that night. There were people who were like, if Netflix was smart, they would break it up that way. You know, they would, you know, they, 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 there are probably, I can't think off the top of my head, but there are probably cuts or, you know, kind of act breaks in the movie where you could, you could kind of put it online as three different installments or something because yeah I think that's you know I think that is how some people will watch it they'll watch an hour and a half they'll go to bed they'll go to work they'll come home they'll watch the second part you know and I think that's fine I don't think them I don't think the experience necessarily loses that much if you break it up that way though I think there also is a benefit from just being there for the long slog because you think you really feel the weight of the movie by the end if you if you do it in one setting.
3: Speaking of um, gangster movies, that is definitely how I watched The Godfather, like, mm-hmm. over... <laughs> really? Like, I think they used to break it up in installments for
0: TV, right? Um, so that's... Or Gone with the Wind. I've definitely watched Gone with yeah. the Wind. And, like, probably, like, Out of Order too. I'm not saying that, like, that's the ideal to- way to watch that movie. But, as, yeah. like, as... I mean, even, like, the most stone-cold classics eventually get that treatment. The Martin Scorsese would probably, like, drop dead if he heard us talking about this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think the interesting thing about the movie... And, and that he did it with Netflix, and maybe that was just a financial decision. But I got the sense from it that, like, there is a bit of non-purism to the movie. Like, I, I feel like he would be more amenable to people watching it the way they want to watch it than maybe some other filmmakers would.
3: Interesting. Like me, you dreaming of one day telling Christopher Nolan about that time I watched Dunkirk on my phone <laughs> 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 on the plane. Why I watched you want on to big... hurt him? I don't know. I just think it would be funny. No, I watched it on the big <laughs> screen first, obviously.
0: But then I like later I watched it again on my phone. Yeah, I did it. So, all right. So, Richard, so what's the Oscar prognosis going to be?
1: Okay. Um... I, I mean, it's a really crowded year, but I I mean, I, I could see De Niro getting a nomination for sure. He's really good in the movie.
2: Lead, um, right?
1: For lead. And then yeah. I think that, but I think the sure bet is Joe Pesci getting a supporting actor nomination. You know, he won a supporting actor Oscar for Goodfellas and he's not playing the same role. It's, it's, uh, it, or even a version of the same role. It, it's a different kind of Pesci turn. I think he's really great. It's my favorite performance in the movie. Pacino does Big Al yelling histrionics. So maybe that will catch people's attention more than Pesci's kind of quieter, more actually really supporting work. But that's where I could see it going. I mean, I think the technicals, uh, you know, the editing, the production design, the cinematography are all contenders. And I think, you know what, like if the Academy is not too saturated in, you know, other Netflix films, it's also a best picture. It's also a best director candidate. I You know, I I, I think that it has those kind of legs.
0: Well, doesn't it feel like the Netflix film, like even before we saw it, we all knew Marriage Story was going to be a big contender, but like it's a more intimate movie, so maybe not a Best Picture thing. So Netflix seems to be spreading their energy a little bit more than they did last year, where it was kind of Roma or bust, but it does feel like the Roma of this crowd just for the technicals alone.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. it I think that, I mean, you know, I think we do a lot of inferring about Academy Voter Psychology here, so I'll do some more. <laughs> I, I would. I would imagine that in some ways there is a contingent in the academy that looks at something like Roma or something like The Irishman where a you know very talented auteur filmmaker gets to with with their with a with a trusted creative team just gets to do whatever they want because they had the money to do it and i think there is a certain there would there would be a certain desire to celebrate that you know like like Roma mm-hmm. was at the oscars last year so yeah i could see The Irishman kind of getting in on that sort of wave of support for unfettered filmmaker uh, access to funds basically. And just being like, okay, if you, if you let filmmakers do that, we'll give you all the awards because, you know, we want it, we want that to continue. So I, I don't know. I think there's a certain, um, economic dimension to the Irishman that, uh, while kind of galling to people on the outside, $160 million for this, uh, I think in the industry, people are going to recognize that like, well, that's the kind of money you need to put behind a genius filmmaker to get him, you know, to have him make his next masterpiece.
3: Something I'll be really curious to see is the um the Irishman box office. Like I, I think we were all or at least I was a little surprised by how many people turn out for the Tarantino film earlier this year. Um I think I had just sort of given up on people turning out for non-superhero films. Mm-hmm. But they turned out for Tarantino and I feel like they would turn out for Scorsese, but what does knowing that if they just wait a little while and can watch it on Netflix, like what will like I feel like those are two good like case studies to look at the, yeah. the, the true impact of something that will stream on Netflix
0: pretty shortly after its theatrical release. So, yeah. And then looking at Roma's box office isn't even on Box Office Mojo, which is annoying, honestly. Like, I know we can't know how many people watched on Netflix, but I thought we would get box office receipts. Um, so, I'm curious because like, it seems like The Irishman has a potential to play more widely. Like, Scorsese had a huge box office hit with The Wolf of Wall Street not that long ago. He can make long movies about grown ups right. work.
1: Yeah. Because Wolf of Wall Street was, what, three hours? Yeah. Yeah, so if we're... Probably not
0: quite as long as Irishman. And
1: the other thing is, you know, that... I don't mean this derisively, but, like, The Irishman is the ultimate sort of dad movie. Not just because it's about gangsters and it's Scorsese, but because it's kind of about... Dad concerns, you know, older dad concerns, like like toward the end especially. So, like, uh, I, I feel How like... How
0: dare you say that in the year of Ford v. Ferrari, Richard?
1: Oh, God. <laughs> 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 the like-
0: dads are going to war this year. Irishman versus Ferrari. The dad oh, wars.
1: Wow. <laughs> Begun the Ganks- dad
2: wars.
3: versus
0: cars. Wow. Um, yeah. what's?
3: I mean, I thought the, the reaction out of the Irishman screening... In this uh, New York screening, was one of the nuttier things I've seen in a long time. The like rhapsodic, almost like cultish reactions from. Uh, almost entirely white male, uh, film critics in New York, uh, (laughs) saying like, how dare anyone ever, it was like, it was like a Snyder fest. It was like, how dare anyone ever question Scorsese again? Sort of like weird, cultish like reactions on Twitter. And I was just like, I didn't know. I did not know that this was, I mean, obviously I, I think Scorsese is a genius. I revere him. Like, absolutely. But I did not know it was this like, I don't know, charged. It was really interesting. So I'll really...
0: um, I mean, you go see the new Martin Scorsese movie at the New York Film Festival on the Upper West Side. Like, you could not be more like taking a pilgrimage to Scorsese Land than uh, than right. that. So, there's something about that atmosphere that lends itself to that. I think,
3: with the cast and the and the director in attendance, I'm just saying like I don't know that it's a uh, the most accurate
0: temperature mm. of like what the whole world will think of this film. So,
1: no, for it's sure. Kind of incredible
0: what a um, box office run he's been on since The Departed or since The Aviator. Really, like. He's had a he's had like no, like a lot of surprisingly big hits and then Silence, which is a crazy anomaly. Anyway,
1: yeah. Well, I think that um, people who see The Irishman will be surprised that the last portion of the movie feels a lot more like Silence than it does like Goodfellas or Casino, which is I think a sort of interesting uh, mark of Scorsese's evolution.
2: This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to Butcher Box. Butcher box is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Two pounds of ground beef and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com/cadence. That's butcherbox.com/cadence. Well, so Richard, you also went to the premiere night party,
0: which uh, is always a pretty splashy event. Um, what was the the vibe you were getting from that?
1: Hangover uh because <laughs> <laughs> not to not to diss the party or the brand or whatever because it's always a nice time but like Campari was the sponsor at the party and <laughs> there were only Campari cocktails and and beer and wine like no nothing else and i just like that's just like you're asking for, for, for hangovers <laughs> and other... <laughs> the
0: season lasted into September this year.
1: Yeah, but no, I think that the party was fun. It's always like the kind of kickoff to the season in New York, you know, right, right after it turns to fall. And, you know, it's a nice mix of press people and industry people and, you know, various other folks. And it was really fun to be at the party this year where the movie that, you know, the opening night movie was such a big deal, you know. Um, I think that's a real coup for New York Film Festival, which has in most recent years i think struggled a little bit with like getting the big world premieres the irishman uh felt really exciting and you know I, I hope that also the 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 sort of glare of that attention also shed some light on the other films that they've programmed which are yeah mostly replays from other festivals but like really cool stuff like the Modovar film like Bacarau, this great film from brazil um and actually i have a little anecdote about that if i can share it with you Ooh, oh sure. a baccarat yeah. an anecdote a baccarat anecdote so uh, yes very so kind. back when i saw that movie at can uh, I took to Twitter afterward, um, and I won't spoil anything about the movie cause everyone should go see that movie, um, uh, unspoiled. And I, I wrote a really elegant tweet, which was back wow, more like back. Wow. Um, <laughs> that was, uh, b- it. Brazilian film, Twitter founded. Cause as we know, Brazilians are, I think among the most active people on Twitter. Um, and, and that, so they all kind of retweeted it and you know, whatever, that was in May so last night I went to a party for Kino Lorber the sort of boutique distributor that puts out a lot of great foreign films and I met the filmmakers behind Baccarat and I I, you know Rosé and a Half in was like you know that's actually kind of funny I tweeted about your movie and they were like that was you oh my god and they like got the producer of the film they're like this is the Baccarat wow, wow guy <laughs> And she was like, oh, we talk about that all the time in the office. And I was like, so um, just, just take note, folks, that like even your dumbest of tweets like, will, will, will oh, be seen no. by people. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, so that's all to say that like there are gr- other great films at New York Film Festival. And I hope that The Irishman, uh, you know, the, all the sort of fanfare for that brought attention to these other great, um, you know, arguably smaller movies.
0: Um, Joanna can you tell me how much Fantastic Fest was just like the New York Film Festival
3: <laughs> oh yeah well I don't know if you know this about me but I um, tweeted out a couple months ago Parasite more like Paranice <laughs> uh, <no>. uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fantastic Fest is a very different animal for the New York Film Festival. Uh, I was there for about nine days, and I think the last, the closing night movie was *Knives Out*. And during the intro, director Ryan Johnson said something like, uh, "By now, your innards are shellacked with queso. And I was like, "Yep, that's about right." Nine yep, days is a, a
1: long <laughs> so time. So long,
3: so long. But yeah, so Fantastic Fest, Austin, a great. Fun genre film festival that gets, you know, a few films sort of hop, skip, and a jump over there from TIFF. Uh, We got... The Lighthouse, Dolomite, Jojo Rabbit, Knives Out—you know, which had all just premiered—and then, like, I feel like those filmmakers went directly to Austin uh, to screen there, um, and that was really fun. It's fun to see uh, a lot of those movies with like a really amped-up Alamo Drafthouse audience, but far and away, like, with all the offerings on the table, a lot of like really cool uh, new filmmakers on the slate. Parasite, far and away, everyone's favorite film of the festival, which I know we've been talking about since, can, but, like, cannot underestimate, undersell how big that was at this particular festival, and it didn't even get, like, it didn't even get one of the big, uh, like, nighttime, primetime spots, it got, like, an earlier in the evening spot. For some reason I don't know why this complicated Did they not s- have like talent
0: with it? Is that one of the No, Bung jun ho was there like like they Oh, that poor man is just has been traveling the world all year. Yeah. <laughs> he had like a plaque d- dedicated
3: to him at the draft house like it was this whole big cool thing, but like he was there, he was doing pre- like ton of press, like he was really doing it. Um I don't know, it's just like schedule you know, you know, uh, Jenga or whatever. But um, it did not even get like one of the big like late ones, but it was just the biggest thing that people were talking about, you know. And and I learned at the festival that Parasite is already his most popular international film, like more popular than anything he's made, like Snowpiercer or anything he's made. And it's it's an incredible film. And what's funny, well, I don't know. Can
0: I – I, I, should Spoilers I, are tough for this movie I don't
3: want to spoil I'm not just going to spoil anything I'm just going to say I thought the title was more literal than it was I just didn't like look into what Parasite was about and uh, since it was playing at a genre film festival I you assumed it, was it to be little, about like actual bugs I, I, was, I thought it was about <laughs> bugs and- <laughs> <laughs> it's not and so like so i the only spoiler I will give you is that it's not very genre-y,
0: you know? Uh so the not, fact in that the, it, like, not in the like not the way that like the host is or like Snowpiercer. Like he's made right. much more genre-y, exactly. Um, and,
3: uh, you know, and, and, and that's not a first for fantastic fast, like burning played there last year. Like this is, they're interested in, in global film, uh, as well as genre film. But I just, I, for some reason I thought it was like more genre friendly than it was. I was, uh, delighted by it and delighted to just see it be the, the shiny star of the festival. So there you go. Parasite. Uh, but Jojo Rabbit was like, uh, you know, it feels like a million years ago that I saw it. That whole Emmy's happened since I saw it. But <laughs> that, that was the opening night film. And that was interesting because it was so fresh off of its uh, TIFF win. Like you guys had it just... It was like
0: the same week, right? Yeah.
3: You guys had just recorded um, an episode of Little Gold Men that was like, is Jojo Rabbit our god now or whatever the title of that episode <laughs> was. So like, you know, that, that, <laughs> those were the expectations crowding around the film. And it landed really well, but not earth shatteringly well at the festival, uh, even though it's a very like Taika Waititi friendly festival. Um, people really liked it, but they didn't, you know, they weren't losing their minds over it. So I don't know. I am genuinely curious to see what happens to Jojo Rabbit on the, on the long award circuit um, after all that. But yeah, in terms of like award season narrative, I would just say like the Parasite momentum continues to gather. Um, I also saw this great, it's not eligible for awards, I believe. Um, I don't think it's coming out until next year, but uh, A24 picked up this film St. Maude out of TIFF. I think it was like one of the Midnighters at I TIFF. I heard some
0: people talking about that at TIFF, yeah.
3: Yeah, um, and it's screened here. It's a first-time feature from a female uh, director, and it was really good. And I, you know I'm not like a horror person, so what was I doing at a genre film festival? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I went and saw St. It's like It's like creepy lesbian catholic horror (laughs) like that's kind of the best kind of horror I think and uh, a great performance from Jennifer Ely and uh, it's really really slow burn and really really good film so I'm excited for people to check that out and then um you know, the lighthouse is one of the surprise screenings and people really responded well to that. Uh, not myself because I get seasick, uh, watching things. <laughs> and it doesn't a lot take place of like, on a boat. It's on dry land. It's just a lot. Well, no, I mean, it's, I really admire the film, but there was just a lot of throbbing wave crashing that, um, that <laughs> did not sit well with me and my case of dinners. But,
0: uh, so it shouldn't really, be like, really like a four D X thing where your seat moves along with the
3: movie. <laughs> And you get, like, a sea spray in your face. Uh, No. But, I mean, it's bravura performances from Robert Pattinson and Will Defoe. um. That
0: movie feels so perfect for Fantastic Fest because it's not sort of genre like, a little bit, but it's just so weird. And it's so stylish that, like, it really needs you to, like, get on board with it. And it feels like Fantastic Fest is a place to do that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. People were so, so, so excited to talk about it, Um, you know, because it's in this, like, different aspect ratio. It's in black and white. And Robert Eggers is so, uh, the director is so, he's one of those directors who can talk about A film and talk about all the deep cut references that he's used in the film without sounding insufferable, and I think that's an incredible feat of of, of, uh, speechifying. If you can like give your deep cut references and not sound like you're condescending, and which is he just sounds enthusiastic and really smart. So um, yeah, I'll be curious if like if the if the Pattinson heads the 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 Twihards. Oh uh, man, guess we still call them that. I mean, how can we not? But it, do they come out for Pattinson's weird run of films? I hope they do. I hope they see all of his weird films, uh, because what a joy. Uh, yeah. So it's fantastic fest. I mean, I don't know if, like, I don't know how you guys are feeling about Jojo Rabbit uh, a week and a half, two weeks later. How much time has
0: passed? Oh, uh, God. If what, that still feels movie, like a story. What movie is this? Remind me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Richard, you've, like, you've been surrounded by festival people for Neurofilm Festival. Like, does it feel like Jojo Rabbit still exists?
1: uh <laughs> like sort of i mean i don't know I, I someone someone on twitter the other day was talking about well they're talking about joker but about how like especially this year like it feels like these all these movies have this like steep you know, ascent to high profile at festivals and then just kind of drop off and, and, you know, it's the media's fault for not, um, you know, waiting to, you know, holding coverage until the movie's out and people can actually see it. Um, And so maybe Jojo Rabbit's suffering a little of that, but I, I think it's kind of lying in wait, you know. I think that, like, we're past the flurry of the festivals and all that. And so now it's just more like, okay, let's wait for this to come out and see how it does. I mean, you know, I think that, an obvious example, you know, and last year was Green Book, where, like, you know, it came out of nowhere, won Toronto. I feel like it kind of lay dormant for a bit, came out, didn't do quite as well as maybe some people thought it would, but, like, it ran, the you know, the, the sort of steady race from release to a win. And, you know, maybe JoJo will, will be the same story. Uh, I think that maybe journalists uh, have have sort of kind of assessed that movie and written it off or, or kind of, you know, put it on the shelf, And you know, but, like, that, that by no means... Uh, indicates that the movie uh, has lost any momentum, I don't think.
0: So talking about The Irishman now, feel like I feel like this season has lacked uh, narrative a little bit, and like a lot of times these narratives don't become clear for a while, so I'm not saying that like this is set in stone, but just thinking about, again, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Irishman as these two movies of masters from different generations but have been around a long time kind of assessing their own work and the industry that they're in that feels like such an irresistible thing for the Oscars. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing to put next to each other. Like last year, you've got this lineup of, I think it's four or maybe so it's like most like a lot of newcomers like Alfonso Caron even like had won an Oscar before, but hasn't been around as long as Scorsese and Tarantino. Um, I just feel like Jojo Rabbit can like definitely has tons of room in this category and you can see Taika Waititi getting a best director nomination and everything else. But if like people want to talk about movies and talk about like, People who are such a big deal in the form like Scorsese and Tarantino, are going to have such a huge grip on the the narrative from here.
1: Well, yeah, until I mean, Little
0: Women comes and wins every category. Like, which yeah, we all expect at this Women. Point.
1: Kyle Buchanan at the New York Times, the their carpetbagger, uh, he has Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as the front runner to win Best Picture right now, and that's kind of uh, how
0: I have felt at this point. Not that like I would set that in stone, but it feels that way, right? Well,
1: yeah, I was gaming this out with some other, uh, you know people at the Irishman party last weekend and we were kind of like we we're sort of like you know that like that like gif of the lady with all the figures you know kind of her eyes looking back and forth we were like doing that for for, for once upon a time and it was like yeah you know actually that sort of does make sense right now um and
0: we're so fun at parties we just like get yeah. in a big group and it's just like, what's
1: gonna win best picture drinking our parties and regretting <laughs> invite <it later>. us <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, I have a I have a question about that, uh, and it and it speaks to some mail that I've received this week. Did you guys receive some mail from Netflix this week? Uh, I got coasters for American Factory. I got no fewer than seven packages in the last two weeks from Netflix Documentary Awards. Uh, okay, consideration. Yeah. So yeah. I got a sh- like a stack of screeners and then some swag, mm-hmm. and it is feels very early for that to be happening. Well, the Critics' Choice
0: Documentary Awards are pretty early, so I think that's the reason behind it.
3: That's true, but it just, it feels like it's, they're the only ones and they're they're a little early. Like, it feels intentional to be like, pay attention to, like, let's go early and catch their attention. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if that sounds, um, (laughs) like, I'm making too much of a story out of it, but it feels like, like uh, there's a shock and awe of the sheer number of things that came to my house in the last mm-hmm. week and a half and then there's just the timing which feels not like crazy early but just like a little early as in like we can get in early before the competition gets there and gets their attention yeah. and um so it just sort of speaks to the increased like maybe tactical awareness of the Netflix campaigns and uh, I will be very curious. I mean, like Roma was already sort of bananas last year, but I'll be very curious to see what they do with Marriage Story and Irishman and, and how, how creative Popes. they try to get uh, with those with those campaigns. You know? Yeah,
0: and I should say that Netflix is also bringing a ton of movies to Film Fest 919 um, here in Chapel Hill in North Carolina. Um, they brought Roma last year and brought the actresses and kind of really impressed me by how all out they went for this fairly small and new regional festival. Um, and now they're going to have uh, basically everything but The Irishman. It's uh, Two Popes, Marriage Story, Dolomite, and... Um, a large Netflix contingent. So they are, yeah, they're, they're running the circuit this year again. Right. And they're bringing all
3: of, all of those to the Mul Valley field festival it kicks off here next week. They're bringing all of them. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, it's, they're, they're on the hunt. Uh, that's no, that's no headline. That's no shocking story. I'm just saying like, I, I think it'll be fun to watch like what their different tactics might even be this year.
1: And I so. think that, you know, they're, 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 they're going to wear down a lot of resistance, you know, and there still is resistance. I mean, and maybe it's not less American. I mean, at, at, at the Venice Film Festival, um, when the Netflix logo came up on the screen, which it did three times because they had three films there, people booed, you know. So that's still hmm. happening. But that's maybe, a, you know. But here in the States, how do a lot of people watch a movie like The Irishman or something like Roma? They see a filmmaker get all the resources they want how do you sort of resist that? You know, you're like, yeah. okay, like, so maybe that's where I go. If, if Scorsese is going there and Quran is going there and bombak is going there, like maybe that's where, you know, Nicole of center, um,
0: and well, and um, not the Oscars, but Michael Bay's trailer just dropped this yeah, morning right. for this incredible, like, very expensive Michael Bay movie that's going to be exclusively on Netflix in December.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, I, I think that that's, you know, maybe that's how Sarandos and whoever else kind of sees themselves winning the 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 war against, the, the, you know, this resistance to to their platform is that, like, well, we're just going to throw a lot of money at the problem uh, and we're going to, you know, slowly or maybe quickly convince filmmakers and, and thus other people in the industry that this is where it's at if you want to get your thing made uh, just you know exhibitors be damned
0: what is it that uh, that Brian Cox screams at Cherry Jones in that episode of Succession just like just take the fucking money and right. runs yeah. out of the room yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> Money wins. Um, yeah, the the other obvious – I mean, I've already mentioned this, but the other obvious unpredictable factor this year is the fact that Fox Searchlight, which has always been, like, canny when it comes to awards, now has, like, the might of Disney behind it, right? So yeah. So that's, that's the Jojo Rabbit narrative, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens there.
1: Yeah, and Searchlight, you know, it's their 25th year, and they have the little – you know, thing showing before their movies, like 25 years, like, like Searchlight has a a nice narrative this year as well. It may be not as quite as strong as Netflix is, but also that's maybe an asset in that, like, you know, they're a more traditional film company. So yeah, and I, they have a lot, they have, you know, a lot of resources to throw behind Jojo Rabbit, uh, which, uh, you know, so we're only, we've only just begun this, this, this feels feels like they're,
3: yeah, it feels like their best shot at this point.: But it was um, interesting. I
1: was speaking with David Sims, friend of the podcast, about this, and he was noting that every major film studio, except, I believe, Paramount well, they had Rocket Man, which didn't quite work for them, has uh, at least one Oscar contender. Like, like strong Oscar contender, which is really interesting.:
0: Wow. Uh, Rocket Man can at least they maybe compete for those costumes, which I'm still thinking about, that soul kimono. <laughs> um, okay, are we ready to talk about best actors for a little bit in Judy. Yeah. Yes. All right, I still haven't seen Judy, um, so I won't weigh in too much on there. But uh, it opened pretty well. The fact that Judy and uh, Downton Abbey are really running the box office right now brings joy to my heart. Like I'm just <laughs> grateful for those boomers. Um, and Renee Zellweger has kind of established herself in this this kind of like ironclad front runner position in the Best Actress race for like so many reasons. Richard, you wrote a whole piece last week about how it, the performance is worthy on its own. It's not just a narrative. It's not just a, oh, she's playing a real person, so we have to throw an Oscar at her. Um, do you feel like that's getting discussed enough? as the renaissance uh, gets started? Uh, well,
1: <laughs> uh, look, I'm not I the first person to say su- that. No, I fully support the renaissance, both the idea and the term. Um, <laughs> Thank, reject, you. But, <laughs> Thank you. Thank um, But uh, yeah, I think that, you know, the thing that I do worry a little bit about, and yes, it's early, I know, is look at the Glenn Close situation where yeah. everyone's like, well, she's going to win. Okay. And I, you know not to brag, have spoken to several Academy members who did not vote for Glenn Close they, because they said, oh, well, everyone else will vote for her. She'll win. And then she didn't. Yeah. Uh, and so I do think that maybe there is that sort of inertia thing happening that could happen with Renee Zelliger. Um But that's why I kind of like thinking about that is why I wrote the piece that'll be uh, that's online now um, is it, kind of like. Yes, there is this sort of meta-narrative about Renee Zellweger coming out of a sort of self-imposed semi-retirement to do this iconic role, and and, and maybe that's the thing that wins her an, an award, and I don't think she's necessarily shying away from that narrative herself. Her PR people certainly aren't. But there's also this incredible, actual, just technically wonderful performance at, at, you know, at the center of Judy, which is a fine movie. It's a good enough movie to support her. But uh, I... You know, I, I think that those two things can get confused, the sort of meta narrative and the actual performance, in a way that they might not for a male actor, you know. Um, everyone can mm-hmm. just focus on Daniel Day Lewis's incredible technical skill as a performer. And that's enough. We don't have to think about the Daniel Day Lewis of it all. Not that there's much we know about him anyway. But you know what I mean? Like and, and I think that for for Zellweger it's you know, because she's playing this iconic person and whatever, she has a tougher hill to climb to sort of eschew all that and get people to just focus on the work she does in the film, which I think is really great.
3: Well, there's a, there's a few other differences in the narrative, though, this year, right? Like, I, I don't think it's quite accurate that, like, Glenn Close was anointed at the winner and that was it because there was the whole Lady Gaga narrative that was happening at the same time. And I don't see a Lady Gaga, like, analog this year. Um, and then she, also... She's, it's
0: in supporting and it's Jennifer Lopez.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's supporting. You know what I mean? If, if like, yeah. you know, she loses her mind and runs in lead, then we have a, you know, ball game, but she's going to run in supporting <laughs> and that's fine. But, um... But also, Judy, like, made close to $3 million at the box office, which is already one-third the total domestic gross of the wife, as in, like, people were not talking about the wife because in—they were talking about Glenn Close and it's Glenn Close's time, but they weren't talking about the performance in the film because a lot of people did not see that film, whereas and Judy— it was, like, And the performance
0: more, was, like, good. It was a very good Glenn Close performance, I think. But it was all Renee about that gotten, narrative, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly.
3: Whereas Renee is getting sort of the Rami Mali treatment, where it's like a middling film uh, with a great performance. At the, well, I mean, your mileage may vary, but that was the Bohemian Rhapsody narrative, right? Is that like, well, Bohemian Rhapsody was trash in a lot of ways, but Rami was good in it. And, you know, like, Renee is good in Judy, which is. I, you know, I saw it last night. I liked it way better than Bohemian Rhapsody, but, um, is still like kind of a a middling movie, you know? So, um, I see the comparisons you're making there, Richard, but I think it's a a little different in, in Renee's favor, which is, you know, which is fun. That being said, she does already have an Oscar. So, you know, it's not, it's not quite the, it's Glenn's time sort of story. But it's
1: supporting. And I think that people really do view it as different. You know, like the way when Kate Blanchett won for Blue Jasmine, it was like, finally, Kate Blanchett has won her Oscar. It's like, well, she had the thing for The, <laughs> the <laughs> Aviator, you know, but people forgot, you know, and also yeah. she was playing yeah. Yeah, she was playing another famous person. But yeah, I mean, we'll see. I hope that it's a different narrative than the Glenn Close situation. Obviously, they're two different actors and they have different stories. Um, I just see a little bit like I, I, I worry that she could become a victim of apathy and assumptions, you know. Well, like Mm -hmm. I'm I'm gonna focus on whoever, you know, else is my favorite actress because like it's there's no way that she's not winning, you know. And if enough people think that she doesn't win.
0: We should talk about the other favorites, though, because I think the thing that would unseat Renee Zellweger is if critics really circle behind one particular other best actress candidate. And it doesn't feel like that's happening yet. And no one has seen Bombshell yet, um, so that's uh, Charlize Theron and maybe Margot Robbie, depending on how that shakes out. And uh, Little Women is, uh, isn't is out yet either, and Saoirse Ronan's lead in that. But other than that, like, Scarlett Johansson's kind of the only option. And as we've discussed, like, she has her trouble with critics and the type of people who would be voting for Critics Awards. Do you guys see another, like like, strong favorite emerging here? No, I think it's, like,
3: I was thinking about Saoirse and about Scarlett, and that's about it. Um Yeah, yeah Scarlett is so good <laughs> in Marriage Story. She's
0: uh, crazy good in Marriage and I Story. Just,
3: yeah, I just wish that there wasn't this other, this cloud that hangs over everything she does, you know what I mean? Because she's so good in that film, so it's too bad.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's to Zellweger's benefit that this... Unlike recent years we you know we said it before on this show like it's such a it's 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 a much heavier actor year than it is an actress year you know there are great performances by actresses like Elizabeth Moss in um, uh, Her Smell that I don't Never think will, forget. Will, will, will will actually get anywhere I don't think Aquafina in The Farewell will I don't think that Honor L- Lupita, Burns Whitman yeah. L- Lupita in Us you know I mean maybe uh, Yeah
3: Lupita in Us like feels like it Could be a nomination, but it just feels like we're not talking about us enough anymore for it to be like a real... Story. You
0: know? I wouldn't count Aquafina or Lupita just because of how up and down this category is. Like, I think some people are counting on Cynthia Erivo, but Harriet was really not that well received at festivals, and she is beloved uh, in theater circles, but maybe not famous enough to carry the whole thing. Like, Bombshell could really be, and you know, don't know what that's going to be. Um, and Us and The Farewell have awards campaigns for you know various elements of them, but it's something like they are more visible than say Her Smell, which God knows I would love to be paid to be run the campaign for Her Smell, but no. One has offered it to me yet? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think that um, Aquafina. I can definitely see winning a lot of critics' awards, and I can definitely see uh, a nomination for her. I'm not counting her out. Um, I just don't know that she's like tip top of the category.
1: Sort yeah. Of thing, I mean, like,
0: Richard, if you were voting in you're from critics circle tomorrow, like who would you vote for?
1: I would vote for Moss. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe. I, th- I
0: mean, who knows? Maybe that's what does it. Like, it's like critics' awards have invented Oscar campaigns before.
1: No, it's true. And I don't you know, I don't think that we should count anyone out at this point. It's only October 1st and we're recording this. Um, uh, Yeah, I I, I think that this year will be a test of if campaigns have any efficacy, you know, like because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff earlier in the year that's smaller that was regarded well, but not enough to be, you know, a phenomenon, et cetera, et cetera. And, and yet those names still sort of hang in the air in certain rooms when you talk to people who are, you know, voting for various things. So, I don't know. We'll see if, if these campaigns can, can, you know, push those things back into the consciousness well enough. Or if, again, that sort of just like inertia will set in and people will be like, ah, just rubber stamp it for Renee because, you know, I think, I think it would be a deserving win. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But uh, it, it could happen or not happen depending on uh, how sort of preordained it seems to people.
3: What, what do we think is the most crowded category?
0: Is it best actor? Like, is that the... Best actor is pretty crowded. Yeah. You know, like, looking at I'm looking at the, the film experience, our friend Nathaniel Rogers, who has these great lists, like Adam Driver, Joaquin Phoenix, Antonio Banderas, Christian Bale, Eddie Murphy, Leonardo DiCaprio, Adam Sandler, Jonathan Price. Then you get to Robert De Niro on this list. Like, that's a lot of people. And then, you know, Taron Egerton, who would be, you know, I think deserve a long shot campaign and may have one, but, like, would stand a chance in any other year.
3: Yeah, I don't know. Well, well I know we we'll, I know this was our week to talk about best actress and we did it. <laughs> but I, I was just sort of curious
0: really quickly if like what is the nail biter this year? And I guess we'll get to that uh, later. So I feel like last year Olivia Coleman's win like shook the ground of what best uh, actress is more than we give it credit for. Like it was such a satisfying win in so many ways, but it made no sense based on all of the Oscar narratives we were telling ourselves. So it makes me wonder if we're like chasing our own tails a little bit, and we don't know nearly as much as we think we do. Co- like constantly, our narrative right here a <laughs> little Coleman, <laughs> but maybe we have no idea what we're talking about. Um,
3: well, it, doesn't the Coleman win feel kind of the function of what Richard was talking about in terms of like this weird behind the scenes thing that happened with Best Actress, where you had like Gaga and Glenn Close tying at a bun- like uh, you know, at a previous award ceremony, and then like you know, it feels like a vote split thing that happened, right? Like. Which is no knock on Olivia Coleman winning. She's freaking great. I'm so glad she has an Oscar. But that feels like a a weird vote split.
0: uh, And like the power of a performance or a movie that people really love. Like, was that the only award that the favorite won? I think so. Or maybe, yeah. So like, you know, the idea of people kind of going in and knowing they don't have anywhere else. Like, maybe it inclines you. It's hard to know how you think when you're filling out a ballot like that. But she was a great representative of the movie, obviously.
3: I'm fascinated to see what happens when Little Women hits, and it's so fun that it's like this bomb that's waiting to drop. Uh, the best we kind don't of bomb.
0: Know. I keep <laughs> I hearing forgotten. it's very yeah. good
3: from people who
1: see I know.
0: It. People who are going to see it who are not allowed to talk about it at least tell us that they like it, so we can yeah. pass it on secondhand. <laughs> I was just so relieved. like The first <laughs> time I heard from someone who'd seen it and said it was good, I like the relief I felt was so immense because I've been counting on this movie so hard.
3: I had forgotten that Winona got uh, Winona Ryder got an Oscar nomination for playing Joe. Well, it's a great uh, movie.
1: I mean, that's the thing. I, I hope that people don't forget how good that, that 94 version is because, it, in the wake of all of the, the, the new movie because that, that version's really great.
0: Uh, well, next week is Joanna Tees. We're going to go deep on Best Actor. Uh, my idea was to kind of pick an acting category each week this month to go deep on. And we'll have a lot to talk about after we've all seen Joker. So uh, stay tuned for more of that. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, which is also where you can find the Joaquin Phoenix cover story and lots of other great stuff from all of us. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs.
1: And this week's award for the best review of A Kempari Hangover goes to Katie Rich.
0: The first 90 minutes are maybe not that great.